Revelation, the third chapter. I'll begin at verse 7. The letter to the church at Philadelphia. As we know, this is not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It is uh, the church uh, in Asia Minor called in the town of Philadelphia, which today is in Turkey. Revelation chapter 3, the Lord's word, beginning with verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take away, excuse me, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now, we've been looking at this letter to the church at Philadelphia, and I said that's modern-day Turkey today. And Allison and I were blessed enough to be able to, to, uh, to visit the uh, site of the seven churches in January of this year. And uh, uh, Philadelphia is one of them. Philadelphia is a uh, uh, very, very uh, small uh, area because the town around it, as I've mentioned to you, I think before, the town is built up around it. It's in a small town in Turkey, but it's right in the middle of town. The ruins are, and there's not a whole lot to see in Philadelphia, unlike Ephesus, for example. It's just a tremendous uh, site, but uh, they don't get many visitors to the ruins of Philadelphia. Uh, we talked to the guide about that, and he said very few people come. But it's uh, uh, so there's not a whole lot left. Some overturned. Uh, pillars and things like that. Uh, and uh, Philadelphia was about 200 years old when the book of Revelation was given to the Apostle John by Jesus Christ. That makes it a very young city. 200 years in the ancient world is nothing. Uh, we think that a building that was built in the 1800s is an old building today. Well, you go there, and they, they, would, they would laugh, even in modern-day Europe. Uh, they, they laugh because they look, they're looking at things that were built uh, oftentimes uh, before Christ's time. Uh, and in fact, we, we stayed uh, when we were in Rome. Uh, we stayed in a, uh, a building that was built in the uh, uh, 1400s, and part of it was built in the 1300s. Uh, the shower was built in the 1300s. Excuse me, 1200s. 1200s. That's correct. The shower was built in the 1200s. I think. I hope they remodeled it. I think they did. But uh, it's uh, so that the idea of a 200-year-old city is is a very young. And uh, just to review, uh, it was founded as a center of uh, Greco-Asiatic civilization. When I say Asiatic, I don't mean China and, and, and that Asia we think of, but this was that'd be Asia Major, if you will. This is Asia Minor, and this is what the Greeks and the Romans called it. Uh, it was a uh, 
It was founded to be a means of spreading the Greek language and manners uh, in that area of the country. It was a missionary city from the beginning. It was a mission of Greek cultures uh, to promote uh, the Greek culture, and then it became a missionary city of the gospel. Uh, the Lord picks out certain places and that have trade routes and things so the gospel can be spread. We know that uh, the fact of uh, ancient Israel, and we certainly see this in the case of uh, these uh, uh, seven churches. And the people worshipped your pagan gods, Zeus, um, uh, particularly Bacchus or uh, Dionysius, the same name, uh, was worshipped uh, uh, as, a, as a key god there. Um, there was an earthquake in AD 17, uh, some quite a few years before this letter was written, that destroyed a lot of the city. Uh, most of the people moved out of the town of Philadelphia and lived in the surrounding countryside because they were afraid buildings would collapse on them. Uh, so they had moved, moved out a lot. Uh, and we said uh, earlier that uh, uh, Christ uh, identifies himself as he who is holy. In verse 7, he who is true. He who has the key of David, who opens and no man shuts, and shuts and no man's open. Uh, we said that uh, Christ is true. He calls himself true. Well, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Famous, famous verse. So he is the truth. He is the way to God. Uh, God the Father uh, uh, is uh, the truth. Uh, all things, he is, there's nothing false in Christ. And only things can be known uh, truly if they are known in Christ uh, and he is the life, he is eternal life and uh, he is our, in fact our life on earth, uh, he's both eternal life for those who are saved it's eternal death, for, uh, damnation for those who are not saved uh, but he's also our life to th- uh, here, uh, by him all things consist uh, so if it weren't for Christ himself atoms would fly apart, it's his power that keeps them together uh, you know, it, it is a it is a man's organized reason is not truth and I, you know, some of you have heard me say this before uh, it is, even Albert, Albert Einstein admitted that science is educated guesses uh, he said quote, we know nothing about the universe at all all our knowledge is but the knowledge of school children maybe someday we will know a little more than we do now but the real nature of things that we shall never know never so science cannot be understood apart from Christ. Uh, now, the purpose of man's reason is not to figure out whether the Bible is true. Uh, we don't bring our reason to say, well, this seems reasonable to me, but this part over here, like Thomas Jefferson did. Uh, he took the Gospels, and he said, well, he liked the part about loving your neighbor, and he thought that was good, and some of these other things Jesus said, but he didn't believe that Jesus did these miracles. So he literally took scissors and took his Bible and cut out the parts that he didn't agree with. And then he had that published. It's called the Jefferson Bible. And you can buy it in a bookstore today. Uh, it's, it's the Gospels without, without Christ, basically, without the miracles, uh, without any of the divinity of Christ. It's just Christ as a, as a nice guy and a good example of a human being. Uh, well, we can't, my point is telling you that is we can't bring our reason, like Jefferson did, Thomas Jefferson, you can't bring your reason uh, to the Bible and say, well, this part I agree with and this part I don't agree with. Because our reason was created by God and it's not equipped to do that. It was never made to do that. Our, why do we have reason? So we can 
live in the world, put, the, put God's creation together and live in the world so we don't walk in front of a speeding car. That's our reason. Our reason tells us that. Uh, our reason tells us, hmm, uh, it is told famous inventors, well, if I take something like this and I take this over here and I put it together with this over here, I have an internal combustion engine. Or I have a, you know, a, a cure for some disease. Uh, or I've invented soap. Or whatever it might be. Our reason gets us to think about things like that. But our reason is not made to judge God. Our reason is not made to judge God. This book judges us. God's word judges our reason. And if we get that reversed, we're in big trouble. Because what happened was at the fall, our reason got corrupted. You know, we say, well, man's, man sinned at the, in the fall of the Garden of Eden. Well, everything about us got corrupted, including our reason. Our reason can't, can't think the way it, it uh, was designed to do, and it was never designed to judge God. Uh, so God is really testing your faith when you're tempted to say, ooh, I really have a hard time believing that, that in the Bible. That part is really tough for me to believe. Or did God really, God really do that? Or did he really say that? Well, that's exactly what the serpent said in the Garden of Eden. He said, Eve said he shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't, uh, he, actually Eve twisted God's word around too, and I'll preach on this very soon, but I've been doing some study on it. But uh, that's exactly what the serpent said. Has God really said that? No, God didn't really mean that. God didn't mean that. No. Well, that's, that's Satan talking to you. When, you. when you look at the Bible or you look at something about God's word and you say, ooh, I don't know if God really meant that, or surely God didn't, doesn't do, surely God couldn't, be responsible for earthquakes and 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 uh, he couldn't be responsible for 9/11 or or you know a guy who murders his family. God's God's not responsible. No, God is not responsible for that. But is it in God's will? Yes, it is. See, if God's were responsible, then he'd have to be responsible to a higher power, right? That's what responsible responsible to means. So God's not responsible to a higher power, but everything is in God's will. Otherwise, God is not God. Right? He's not in control. Do we understand everything? Do we understand why he would permit somebody to murder somebody or permit 9-11? No, we don't understand that, or whatever it might be. We don't understand that. But that's a test of faith. It's a test of faith to say, I'm going to believe God no matter what my reason tells me, because I know my reason is wrong. And people who don't believe that are atheists. That's the bottom line. People who don't, believe, don't accept that... No matter what they may call themselves, may they go to church, they're still atheists. Okay. Christ calls himself the key of David. Well, we think we're pretty well clear there in Isaiah 22, 22. The key of the house of David I will lay upon his shoulder, meaning Christ. Christ has the key to the house of David, which is the church. Uh, the church has always been the church, even in the Old Testament times. In the New Testament, it's called the church in the wilderness. That's talking about Israel. In the Old Testament times, that was the church. So the church has always been the church. The church was the church in the Garden of Eden. Uh, Christ is the only one who can grant access to God. He has the keys to the church. Uh, Christ said, all power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. In in heaven and in earth, in Matthew 28. Uh, And... uh, Colossians 1, and he is the head of the body, the church, which is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Uh, He shall reconcile all things to himself. 
whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. See, everything is happening in human history because of God's plan. No matter what happens, no matter what war happens, no matter what happens in human history, it's all part of God's plan, and it's all coming, and it's all for the good of his church and for the glory of Christ. And the, the, the Bible says that everything is coming together, is being worked together for, to, to reconcile all things in Christ so that he will eventually rule. The, 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 he rules now, but it will be more and more clear that he rules. Uh, and he says he opens, he opens the door to, uh, to the hearts of his elect. Uh, no one can resist him. He shuts the doors to the reprobate, to those who are unbelievers. Um, he can open and none can shut. We said that's grace. He can shut and none can open. And that's God's sovereignty. Okay, we're looking at... I know your works, verse 8 um, in chapter 3. I know your works, he's talking to the church of Philadelphia. Behold, I've set before you an open door, no man can shut. For you have a little strength, you've kept my word and have not denied my name. You, know, you have a little strength. And we have looked at that verse a little bit before. How gentle and sweet and kind he is. This is this is the the most uh, the, the 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 most gentle of the letters to the churches. Uh, he doesn't condemn them, even though they surely had a lot they could be condemned for. Uh, they had the synagogue of Satan in their in their midst, which we'll talk about in a moment, the Lord willing. Uh, but he is gracious and tender. You have just a little strength. You need an open door. You don't have enough strength to open the door. So I will open the door for you. You have no power. Nothing will, but an open door will do for you because you have such little strength. He's telling us he pities our feebleness. Our feebleness. Our little strength. Because we're without strength, he helps us. The less strength we have, the more pity he has for us and the more help he gives to us. And he says, yet you've kept my word. You know, in spite of feebleness, this little church has kept God's word. And he, he lays great stress upon us keeping his word, obeying what he says in the Bible. Now, do we obey what he says in the Bible so we'll go to heaven? No, that's not why we do that. We obey what he says in the Bible because he tells us to obey him and because we love him. If you love me, what? What did he say? Keep my commandments. You know, do you, do you obey your parents? Because if you obey them, uh, you know, you'll, you'll get gifts and, and presents from them. Is that the basic reason that you obey your parents? No. You obey your parents because you love them, I hope. You know, not that you're, oh, I'll get some reward if I do. Uh, you obey your parents because you love them. We obey the Lord because we love Him. Someone who, someone who says they love Him, and doesn't obey him, doesn't do what he says to do, doesn't really love him. They show by what, by their disobedience that they don't really love him. Just as if somebody was a disobedient child constantly uh, might say, well, I love my mommy and daddy, and then goes out and disobeys them constantly. Well, that person really doesn't love their parents. But if they did, they would do what they say. So... 
Christ said, you haven't denied my name. He says, he didn't say you have confessed my name. It's often interesting to see what the Lord doesn't say in the Bible. And what he doesn't say, well, you've confessed my name. He simply says you haven't denied it. He's accepting the very least that they have, that they haven't denied him. I mean, just condescending love, condescending love. Verse 9, behold, I will make of them, excuse me, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but to lie. Behold, I will make them come to worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Now, those in Philadelphia who said they were Jews were, in fact, Jews in the ordinary sense of the word. They believed the Old Testament. They believed the dietary laws and the rituals of the Old Testament. But the Lord looks at your heart, and he says, you're not Jews. Your hearts aren't with me, therefore you're not true Jews. You may call yourself Jews. You may trace your lineage back through generations in in Israel. But he says, you're not Jews the way I define being a Jew. You're uh, You're not a believer in your heart. And that's true, of course, today with so many Jews. Uh, you know, we go to a synagogue today, they're, it's, it, they're, they're Jews in name only. We are, I've often said, Christians are more Jewish than Jews are. Because we believe in the God of the Bible. And they believe in, if the ones who are believing Jews, they only believe in the, in the, in the Old Testament. They don't believe in the continuing, they don't believe in Christ as Messiah, as the Lord. Um, The book of Revelation here underscores the notion that the Jews are no longer the people of God as a national entity or an ethnic entity. I know it's very controversial to say this, but Israel today, the nation of Israel, is just another country. It has no special place in God's plan anymore. And we have, uh, if you look at my blog on Sermon Audio, uh, I've reprinted an article, a quite extensive article by Dr. Robert Raymond, uh, who makes it very clear biblically why that is the case. So he is saying here, since the Jews have rejected their Messiah, they are no longer the people of God. Please turn to Matthew chapter 21. Excuse me, Matthew 21, beginning at verse 33. Lord Jesus, this is the parable of the vineyard, and we're particularly going to focus on uh, uh, verse, uh, the last verse I'm going to read, which is uh, 43. Or, excuse me, verse 43, not necessarily the last verse. Okay, Matthew 21 beginning in verse 33. Here another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a winepress in it and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. Now, 
Some of these words you may not know. Um, he's saying there was a man who had a vineyard uh, and he developed it, put a tower up there in a wine press, and he rented it to people to, to use, like tenant farmers. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen, to the people leasing it, that they might receive the fruits of it. So he sent his servants, the people taking care of the vineyard, saying, okay, it's time to pay me the, the, the rent. You're a tenant farmer, you're a sharecropper, give me a third of the, of the vineyard or whatever it might be. And the husbandman took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, Well, they will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. When the Lord therefore of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? They say unto him, these, these are the people responding to, to Christ. They say unto him, Well, he will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus saith unto them, Did he never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say unto you, The kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. What is he saying? He's saying the Lord sent prophets, and he says this elsewhere too, the Lord sent prophets uh, to the people of Israel. And what did they do? They killed a lot of them. And finally the Lord sent his son, Jesus Christ. And what did they do to him? The Jews turned him over to the Roman authorities and had him executed. And he says, what do you think the Lord is going to do to those people that killed his son, that rejected him? The kingdom of God should be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. Who's the nation? The nation is believers. Whether you're Jewish or Christian, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're part of that saved nation. Just because you call yourself a Jew doesn't mean that you are saved. Paul says not all who call themselves Jews are Jews. And we see this in, in the book of Revelation too. Uh, the Israel of God has always been his elect people. At first it was uh, pretty much limited to, to, to the Jews of Israel. But the Old Testament, test, Old Testament testifies there were many Gentiles as well. Uh, the church has always been the true Israel of God, even going back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Uh, and it's now largely composed of Gentiles. Um, well, that I mentioned Galatians 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision. In other words, if you, if you have been circumcised, if you go along with the Jewish rites or you don't go along with the Jewish rites, it doesn't mean anything. But a new creature is what means something. So churches that worship God in spirit and in truth are the Israel of God. Uh, those that worship false gods or the true God in a false manner are the synagogues of Satan. Though they may call themselves a church of Christ, their claim is a lie. 
So Christ promises to make the Philadelphia church's enemies subject to her. They will worship at thy feet. Your enemies shall worship at her feet. They will be convinced that they've been in the wrong. They will be convinced that this church is in the right and is beloved of Christ. They shall desire to be taken into communion with her so they can worship the same God after the same manner. Now, how can this be? Christ tells us, I will make them. I will make them do that. By the power of God upon the hearts of his enemies. See, we can't believe in Christ. We can't believe this book unless God makes us believe it. You know? When you want to witness to somebody, you want to use scripture because scripture opens the door to their hearts. Don't argue about philosophy and and archaeology and and all this other stuff. Those are interesting things and there's a lot of called evidences and there's a lot of it's a lot of fun to read about that and to confirm your faith in it, but it doesn't convince anybody. The word of God, which is sharper than a two-edged sword, that's what convinces people. So that's why it's so important for us to memorize the word of God. So we, for many reasons, but one is we can witness to other people and quote the word of God and show them where in the Bible it says that. It's very useful to do that, to show. So you've got to know your Bible to be able to show them where it says this and it says that. It's not me saying it. It's God saying it. You know, that's the big thing with witnessing. A lot of people say, well, it's just what you say. That's how you interpret the Bible. Well, how about having showing them a Bible and saying, well, here's, here's what it says. It's not me saying it. So God will make people believe. Now, it's incredible. We know from history that the Philadelphia church remained faithful. I didn't know this, so I started doing research on it. A light to the Gentiles for over 1,300 years. 1,300 years. Now, when you think about how long has the United States been a nation? Not not much more than 200 and some years, right? And Columbus arrived to these shores, what, in 1492? Right? Columbus sailed the ocean blue? Okay. That's 500 years ago, a little more. You begin to realize just how long 1,300 years is. 1,300 years is as long from the signing of the Declaration of Independence until the year 3,076. That's how long 1,300 years is. Or as long as it is from today until the year 4,300 and something. That's how long the Lord used the church in Philadelphia, Turkey. And only he knows what marvelous works it did in his name. Sir William Ramsey, uh, who is a uh, uh, Christian archaeologist, a very famous uh, Christian archaeologist uh, in the 1800s, discovered much of many of the sites that we can still see today, very famous name in archaeology. He wrote a book called Letter to the Seven Churches, uh, Letters to the Seven Churches. And he said, quote, Long after all the cities around it had fallen to the Turkish armies, Philadelphia held up the banner of Christendom. It displayed all of the noble qualities of endurance, truth, and steadfastness, which are attributed to it in this letter of John, amid the ever-threatening danger of Turkish attack. During the 14th century, it stood practically alone against the entire Turkish power as a free, self-governing Christian city amid a Turkish land. 
Twice it was besieged by great Turkish armies and its people were reduced to the verge of starvation, but they had learned to defend themselves and to trust no king or external government, and they resisted successfully to the end. At last, about 1379 to 1390, it succumbed to a combined Turkish and Byzantine army. Byzantine, Byzantia, the Eastern Roman Empire. It was only, unquote, it was only because of the split in Christianity which created the Byzantine Empire that the Turks could finally get control of Philadelphia. So a lesson there is when the church acts unfaithfully, the church is punished. Okay. Let's look at the last few verses. Verse 10 in Revelation 3. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. The word of my patience. Isn't that interesting? Don't let that fly by you. Why do you suppose, why do you say, because thou hast kept my word? Sound like the same thing, but he puts in the word of my patient. Well, I didn't know. It occurred to me when I was researching this, so I tried to find out what other people had said about this, the word of my patients. And somebody wrote, after a day of patience, we must expect an hour of temptation. The Lord has been so patient with us, with the church, with these churches. Those who keep the gospel in a time of peace shall be kept by Christ in an hour of temptation. By keeping the gospel, they are prepared for the trial that is going to come, the the difficulties they're going to have, and the same divine grace that has made them fruitful in times of peace will make them faithful in times of persecution, and this is proven in the history of this church. Behold, I am coming quickly, Christ says. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God uh, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Do you have an ear? Only, only if God gives you an ear can you understand the Bible. There you go. Uh, do you have spiritual ears? you understand what God is saying? you hear what God is saying? As we saw earlier, the church of Smyrna was told it would receive the crown of life. That's Revelation 2.10. Philadelphia was also told, don't let any person take your crown. In both cases, the word is... Stephanos, Stephanos, which Greek, which refers to the wreath of victory that the winners of athletic contests would wear. You see pictures of the of the laurel wreath uh, that the the victors would would wear. So that would have been a meaningful word to the church, uh, the people in the church in Philadelphia, because the city was famous for its athletic games. So they knew all about this uh, this, this uh, Stephanos. Christ also promised to write three names on the believer. I will write on him the name of my God, or the name of God, the name of the new Jerusalem, and Christ's new name. I will write upon him my new name. It's all in verse 12. 
To understand that, see, a lot, of, a lot of times in Scripture we don't understand these old references because we don't live in the culture and we don't understand a lot of the references. That's why it's so fascinating, uh, particularly in the book of Revelation as we've gone through it, to see how these references meant something to the people at the time, but we have to do research ourselves in the history and the culture to, to understand the references. Uh, when he tells the church at, at Pergamon, I'm going by memory now. Uh, but about uh, you think you you can see, but you're blind. Uh, forgive me if I, I get which church that was, but I think it was Pergamon. Well, they were known for being a center of the manufacture of eye salve. Many of you remember that. And so they were known around the, the known world as if you want to if you want to get your eyes treated, get some eye salve that's made in Pergamon or go there. And so Christ is saying, you think you can see, but you're blind. They would be thinking of their eye salve. You know, that's how they, they related to it. So it's very interesting to see what these cultural references are, because he's specifically zinging them, if you will, with cultural references that, that they would understand. Okay, he says uh, he'll write three names on the believer, the name of God, the name of the New Jerusalem, and Christ's new name. Ancient pillars, there's some little cultural factoid, had the names of people inscribed on them, famous people, people that that culture honored. Like today, we'll put up a statue of George Washington or something like that. Well, they would write George Washington's name on a pillar. They didn't have, uh, they had statues, but uh, they didn't usually, they would mostly uh, do that with a pillar. So it's a metaphor, meaning simply that God will honor and bless his people. First, the believer will have God's name. Now, in the Old Testament, the Lord told the priests to pronounce specific blessings on Israel, the people of Israel, which concluded with this thought, and I'm quoting Numbers 6.27, so they will put my name on the Israelites, the priests will, and I will bless them. So the priests will do as I tell them to put my name on the people of Israel, the Israelites, and I, the Lord, will bless them. Now second, to be named with the city of God, the New Jerusalem, New Jerusalem is a symbolic way of saying that the believer has citizenship in God's spiritual commonwealth. And you can look at Galatians 4.26. Uh, it also says this in Philippians 3.20 and in Hebrews 12.22. I'm not going to take the time to look at those, but that's where if you want to see more of that. The believer having citizenship in God's spiritual commonwealth. And Galatians, again, Galatians 4.26, Philippians 3.20, and Hebrews 12.22. Third, the believer is to have Christ's own name. Christ's new name, it says. Now, perhaps, we're not really sure, I'm not really sure, it refers to a future full revelation of Christ's being. You know, we see now, Paul says, as through a glass dimly. You know, we don't see completely, but when Christ is revealed, we will see things clearly. That's what perhaps it is referring to, that at some point Christ, we will know Christ better uh, than it's possible uh, living on earth. Uh, and that won't happen until the believer is glorified. First John 3, 2 indicates this. Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. See, someday we will see Christ as he is in the new heaven and the new earth. Behold, I come quickly, he says. The master is at the door. 
What then are we to do? Hold fast. Hold tight. Don't give up. Hold fast that which you have. As if one of the special temptations of this church would be to let go of her principles, to turn her back on the truth of once she held to contradict not only herself, but the truth of God. And don't we see that in so many churches today? The divinity of Christ is denied. The Bible is rejected as the only word of God. They add to it or they subtract from it. Some parts of the Bible they they say are not true. Or they add to it with a Book of Mormon or some other writings, the writings of Ellen White uh, or or, uh, the Seventh-day Adventist or something like that. The mission of the church is twisted into a humanist agenda. If you go to mainline churches, you're going to hear you know, sermons about you know, ending nuclear war and, and uh, you know, how to grow flowers in the springtime um, on Mother's Day or something. I mean, it, it's just appalling. Uh, but Christ says, not you, Church of Philadelphia, hold fast. And these letters to the churches are not just letters to churches that were around thousands of years ago. They're letters to us. They were written, it says in the first chapter of, of the book of Revelation, it says John, Christ says, John, I'm going to dictate these letters to you, and I want you to send them to the ministers of these seven churches. And these seven churches were pretty close together, by the way. They were just 20 miles or so apart. And they were on a Roman, Sir William Ramsey says they were on a Roman postal route. And that's why they look at them, they're kind of in an oval shape. So it was easy to get these letters around. And Christ said, John, I want you to write these letters. I want you to send them to the churches, uh, to the ministers. The ministers are to read them aloud. But that's not only what they're for. They're for all of the, church, all of the, the, the congregations and the, and the believers throughout history that is to come. So they're, they're all for us. So Christ is saying... Hold fast what you have. No man takes your crown. In letting go what we have, if we let go, if we allow uh, doubts to creep in, if we start reading unbelieving authors who are critiquing God, who are doing what they call higher criticism, uh, we are tempted to let go what we have. We'll lose our crown. So such stress does Christ lay upon consistent adherence to our testimony to his name. A daily battle, to conclude, a daily battle, a daily victory. You know, AA has one day at a time. Christians ought to have one day at a time. We're not trying to, we're not trying to end every sin and live perfectly forever. Yeah, we want to. But let's take it one day at a time, one hour at a time. That sin that besets me, well, I'm not going to commit that sin. Tomorrow is tomorrow is tomorrow, but right now, as Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. You know, uh, it has enough trouble of its own. Be concerned about now. All this is because, with but little strength, the Philadelphian church had kept Christ's words and not denied His name. I'll end with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. What though men call you narrow-minded for cleaving to old truth? now obsolete, as they say, for worship of a book or bibliolatry, as they call it, for the stern refusal to lower our testimony to our glorified Lord and coming King. Let us be content, let us be honored to bear reproach for him and his word. The glory to be given us at his appearing will more than compensate for all. 
he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Amen. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Father, we ask for thy strength, for we are, we have no strength, Father, and we admit it. Christ said, without me, you can do nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. So, Lord, give us that strength to hold fast, to believe, and to show our belief and our faith in what we do, and what we say, and how we live, when, and what we do when no one is looking except the Lord. It's often said a test of a person's character is what they do when they're alone, what they think when they're alone. Father, give us the strength to hold fast, to resist Satan. We resist him, he will flee from us. When we're tempted, let us be in prayer. Father, we thank thee for thy word, for the great love of God and in sending Christ Jesus unto us, Father, for the Holy Spirit that Thou hast given us, for the light and liberty of the gospel, the blessings revealed in, in Thy Word, election, vocation, adoption, justification, sanctification, our hope of glory. Father, we thank Thee for Thy church, and we ask, Lord, that Thou would bless thy church around the world. Keep thy elect faithful to thy word. Protect the persecuted church, Father. Give them courage and strength that they may be a light of the gospel in these nations that want to kill them. Protect, give them courage, Father. Give them strength. We pray for the continuance of the gospel and the ordinances in their purity, power, and liberty. And Father, we pray for our preparations for death and for judgment. No matter what our age, our next breath is not assured. It may come at any time. And uh, Lord, we ask that Thou would prepare us to both serve Thee in this life and to die a Christian death. And in full assurance that we will be with Thee forever, that death is simply a doorway that we walk through. Father, we again thank Thee for the families of this church. We ask, Lord, that uh, Thou would give travel mercies to our visitors today, uh, that Thou would bless them and bless our families, Father, that we may be in daily communion with Thee, uh, both through our own private Bible reading, uh, for our family devotions where we gather together as a family, read Scripture, uh, perhaps sing, uh, meditate, and talk about God's Word. Father, make that a daily habit in our lives. For if we only do it when we feel like it, we'll feel like it less and less. Father, be with us now as we uh, end the service and come together in fellowship one with another. It is in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that we pray. Our final psalm is from the Red Psalter. It is 72.
Psalm 72C, again in the Maroon Psalter. The tune is called Andre. Goes like this. sown a little grain like Lebanon with fruit shall bend. New life the city shall attain. She shall like grass grow and extend. She shall like grass grow and extend. Let's rise and sing this portion together. Mm. On hilltop sown a little grain like Lebanon with fruit shall bend, new life the city shall attain, she shall like grass grow and extend, she shall like grass grow and extend, long as the sun his name shall last, it shall endure through ages all, and men shall still benediction. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Amen. Amen.